What's going on, everybody? Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a huge shout out to all of our incredible sponsors that are uh, just amazing, that uh, provide so much value for everybody here in the self-storage industry. First and foremost, I want to touch on Janus International. Uh, cool story. We actually just got to tour the Janus International facility, their manufacturing facility last week, which was awesome to see how they do their fabrication as a lot of you guys know, and maybe you don't know, Janus International, their, their roots are in metal fabrication. You're talking doors, all this good stuff from the tracks to the door panels themselves. And then uh, Janus also recently, in the past several years or so, purchased the Noki keyless access system, which is an amazing system that allows people to rent and uh, access a facility, uh, get a storage unit, get their stuff in, get out, all that good stuff without ever having to talk to or interact with a storage facility manager. Phenomenal group of people. Their facility was just amazing to walk through and just see all these cool things, how they do it. And I believe we posted some of that to social media. So if you guys aren't following us on social media, be sure to do that so you guys can see some of those things. Super, super cool to walk through and see all that stuff and just the value they're providing to everybody in the storage industry and the level and degree and expertise that they're pumping into all of their products. It's uh, it's very, very cool to see and uh, to experience that. Link is in the show notes. Check out Janus International. Next, we're going to jump into... Live Oak Bank. We're going to talk a little bit about Live Oak today on today's podcast because, as always, a lot of you guys have questions about financing. So, that said, we're directing you guys to Live Oak Bank. Uh, we just did an episode with Terry Campbell, which was great. We dive into a lot of current events, what's going on, what he's singing, and uh, how people are getting started in the self storage industry in their financing. Uh, you know, how are they doing it? What SBA loans are they utilizing? And uh, what kind of incentives have they had going on? All those kinds of things. Uh, super great episode, but Live Oak Bank, a lot of really great people over there. They know, understand storage, get at them. Link is in the show notes. Next up, we've got Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is actually, yet again, just another amazing, amazing platform for the self-storage industry, bringing a ton of value. And uh, you're talking anything and everything property management, and they're just rolling out their Hummingbird property management software. It's an open API platform. You know, I'm not in the uh, tech industry, so I'm not even going to get into the details as, as far as what that even means. But it allows you to actually access your data, utilize it in the ways that you want, and be able to plug it into the systems that you utilize at your facilities. It's not some kind of thing where you can only use it with this or that or whatever. It's open. You guys can plug into it, utilize it however you want. You have that access to your data. You own your data. Your data is not held up in a vault somewhere that you can't access and uh, is held by your competitors or whatever that might look like. So with that said, Tenant Inc., phenomenal products again this is a these are resources that have been developed and are being provided by storage owners and operators themselves uh, we've been a huge part of helping to develop a lot of the software and uh, getting these things rolled out which is just such an awesome thing to be a part of so get at them tenant inc link is in the show notes and of course we've got to mention store local you guys got to check out store local uh, it's a huge huge co-op of storage owner and operators that have brought their resources together that uh, can help you guys and help everyone compete against larger REITs in some of these markets that we're in. We can consolidate these resources both at a market level and a larger, more broad level nationally on, uh, on websites and uh, through the internet and everything else as well. 
It's very important that we're consolidating resources, not only at our market level, but at a broader level on our websites, on our, you know, Google searches and all these different things. So, I mean, you have massive benefits of being a part of Store Local. If you guys have any questions, comments, things like that, you, you or what questions you have of Store Local, get at them. Link is in the show notes. Again, go check out their website, hit them up, ask them questions, and look at all the awesome benefits and things that they have going on over there. With that said, I won't hold you guys up any longer. Awesome episode. Let's get to it. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And today, we have an awesome podcast uh, because we got a lot of feedback on the different podcasts that we've done, particularly the ones where we directly are answering your guys's most popular questions. And me and Connor are super excited to get into this. We have, you guys have just uh, amazing questions and we love directly answering them. But before we jump into that, I want to talk to you guys real quick because the conference is coming up. We've opened up 50 slots. So this is the self-storage conference we're doing at the Coeur d'Alene Resort. We have everything from boat cruises on the lakes, fireworks, dinner. Brandon Turner is going to be there. We have the largest self-storage privately owned company. We have their owners are there to speak. Obviously us. It's going to be, this is really kind of a next level. It's the largest private self-storage event in the world. And you guys got to be there. So we now have 50 slots. I will tell you they're filling up fast. You can do two things. You can go to selfstorageincome.com, go to events and the sign up and the registry is right there. Uh, or go to my Instagram and there's also a link to self-storage income there and then hit on events. It will be multiple days. We're telling you how to buy, how to scale, where the industry's at currently. We have breakout sessions. Um, This is a no sales. Nobody's there. Nobody's pitching. Nobody's selling anything. This is an actual storage event. And we're going to have this be the highest quality one out there. So we couldn't be more excited. We think it's the event that self-storage has needed. Um, But once again, we only have like 50 slots now left. We've opened uh, some up because of popular demand. So you guys got to get there and get them now. And Um, as of now, it is. uh, So this episode's coming out today. Uh, September 1st, 2021 for anybody that's listening to this at any other given point in time. So if you guys are just listening to this now, jump on it, get after it. And uh, one of the things too, we're, we're actually going through actual deals, looking at a deal on site, site. all that yes. jazz. We're like driving two storage Breaking facilities. things down. It's going to be epic. Yeah. this is, And two, that's a storage facility that we use automation technology. We expanded mm-hmm. yeah. that facility. 
So it's it's one of our facilities. We're actually taking you guys through one of our yeah. facilities. Um, it's going to be really, really good. The Inner Circle, which is our Inner inner Circle group, were there a day before. But you need to be, I think we have it booked out for the 29th, 30th, and 1st of October. So people are flying in the 28th, um, and we... Uh, have a ton of people going big names it's gonna um, be rad yeah it is it's gonna be awesome so anyways wanted to make sure you guys got that out there for you guys so that way you guys can get get that booked up and and join i'm excited we got to add more spaces because it's been going crazy uh with that said connor let's do this let's dive in dive into the youtube comments and uh thank all of you guys for all the support here on youtube first and foremost you guys are rock stars and uh i know aj is uh you know doing his best to get comments responded to on here but we thought hey let's just jump on here real quick and kind of consolidate this a little bit and uh dude the newest youtube video i put out is like all on commercial real estate and oh it's a Good one. It's huge. So good. I mean, it's you ran through everything in that video, dude. You talk about like you talk about value, you talk about financing, you talk about the opportunity, and just really break down. And then also like the huge, I guess, selling point. I don't. I hate the word selling point, but just the huge benefit of commercial, commercial real estate, estate is yep. that you don't have to go do single family, then do this, then do that, then get into commercial. You can just go straight into commercial real estate and not and not do that route of, of of wasting your time and resources and effort doing those other things. If you want, cool, do yeah, whatever. Yeah, great. But if you just want to jump right into the commercial real estate game, and for, again, the video out lays out a ton of amazing, incredible benefits as to why you should do that and uh, all of that. Well, you talk risk, you talk oh, all kinds yeah. of, I mean. It's 25 minutes everything. long. It's yeah. basically a course. Dude, it's for real, for real. Like, it's like a, a free course for sure. But no, phenomenal video uh, that just went out yesterday. And uh, I know AJ was recording a ton of videos the other day, and uh, we're just working on getting these things kicked out to you guys. But um, speaking of consolidating things uh, here on uh, the, the podcast, going through comments, one of the first questions we wanted to dive into here, there's actually a couple people that were, were kind of talking about this on YouTube and asking this question. And uh, they had asked, what do you mean when you say the market, I mean, they're saying they they're saying, what do you mean when you say it's consolidating? I could be wrong, but I feel like people always want want a place to put their stuff. Do you have another video on the subject? And you were just talking about market consolidation. Yeah. And if you want to kind of dive into what that is, why that's uh, something that people should be considering, all that good jazz. Yeah, market consolidation is a really important point. It's one of the things that led us actually primarily to the self-storage industry. When we talk about consolidation and fragmentation, uh, fragmentation of markets, really we're talking about ownership. So who owns the assets, right? And in a fragmented market, it means that you don't have single ownership structures that own huge portions of the market, right? So like the simplest way to think about this in certain industries is obviously like tech is a aggregation industry. So the consolidation in the tech space is ginormous, right? You have five companies that rule them all. They basically rule the entire internet. Um, and if you looked then at like single family homes, it's extraordinarily fragmented. Individuals own them. Institutions don't own them. Big companies don't own them, right? When you get into commercial real estate, some commercial real estate sectors ownership is very, very consolidated, right? It's, uh, you have 
Um, like hotels, multifamily. Hotels, multifamily, where it's yeah. like most of the assets are owned by it's and we're not talking to the extent of tech it's not like four people right but they are institutions Mm -hmm. these are huge funds these are things like that right when you look at self-storage self-storage when so when i got into self-storage in the early 2000s 90 i think it was 92 percent of all storage facilities were owned by a single owner mom and pop isn't that crazy (laughs) Isn't it around 70% now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's already dropped to 70%. And I can't even, I can't imagine even just this past year, the impact of this consolidation and the, and the speed that it's going, it's like crazy. the impact that's had on that percentage. Yeah. That'd and, be interesting. And so when we say consolidating, we mean the people that own a lot of them are buying more. So the individual assets are being bought up into bigger companies and single companies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so we are a part of that consolidation. Right. So we are buying up as many as we can under one roof. Like that is what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. That's what made me interested in self-storage because consolidation drives things like value. It drives things like um, exit strategies and cap rate compression. Um, So when you're part of the consolidation, it means you have the ability to put together a huge portfolio. When I looked at other asset classes, I'm like, that consolidation already happened. So I didn't see a huge advantage for me to put together a huge portfolio. I'd have to compete largely with these big, big guys. Self-storage is still very fragmented. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the assets are still owned by mom and pop single operators. That is changing rapidly. And it will continue to change. I mean, I think I started saying like five years ago, we have 20 years, right, of a consolidation that's going to take place. And, uh, you know, however long, 15 years, that's probably true depending on the level that we're talking about. But it wouldn't surprise me if in the next five years we're down closer to 55%, right? So we're going to get to this. Well, it depends on how many uh, facilities we buy, AJ. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Largely just because of us, because we're going to do it, right? Huge market share. Huge market share. But for an individual coming into it, I often say self-storage offers the greatest opportunity for an individual to get into commercial real estate. And that's why. Um, You have an exit strategy because people want to buy. And you also have inventory to buy because there's mom and pops that will sell to you. Um, the bigger you get, the less likely, like the bigger. So if I went to go sell our company now, I'm not selling it to an individual. We're going to sell it to a REIT. We're going to sell it to a huge fund, right? So we have this massive opportunity. Now, we're not going to do that, but um, the exit strategy is there and uh, that pushes values. But that also means that single operators, right? They don't get that opportunity to buy those. Now, That also, though, goes the other way. Single person that owns one asset is much more likely to sell to an individual. So if you're coming in and you wanted to get into multifamily and you're trying to buy a big asset, right, you're competing with lots of big guys. But you can still buy an 80,000 square foot facility one off that a mom and pop owner will sell to you. Um, It's just a unique advantage in the self-storage space. Mm-hmm. No, it really is. Tons of opportunity, which is incredible. Great rundown and consolidation. Love it. Uh, next question, semi, semi-loaded question on portion of it. Uh, so how do you get into self-storage investing with bad credit and no money? I don't know if you want to address the bad credit situation or if we just want to stick to the 
you know, yeah, no I, money situation? <laughs> yeah. When you look at no money and no credit, um, actually, it's funny. I kind of think commercial real estate lends more towards your ability from the simple fact that it, it, commercial real estate is much more dependent on the asset you're buying. And investors want to give money more. Like if if you're going to an investor and saying, hey, I want you to give me 50000 for a single family home, right? You're really sticking to a, a small group of people that are probably going to want to give you that money. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a commercial real estate asset, though, that is cash flowing and it's diversified, it's a higher end asset. More investors are going to be interested in that, that will want to invest with you. And banks are going to look a lot more towards the asset itself than just you. Yeah, they're going to look at you, your team, yes. and all of that. How which, it's going to be managed. And a bank, yeah. if you're buying like single family homes, for example, they, they don't care about any of that. No. Nope. All it is is what's your credit, how much are you putting down, Mm -hmm. and can we go after you? Yeah, yeah. Speaking to that, we actually just had Terry Campbell back on the podcast, most recent episode. If you guys want to go back and and listen to some of that, he dives into how a lot of people are getting started in self-storage and real estate investing uh, on the commercial end with SBA loans and, and how you guys can do all of that. And I would just suggest you guys get, if you have money, financing, funding questions, any of that kind of stuff, reach out to Terry at Live Oak and uh, just get your your questions answered direct from the experts. Um, but speaking to that, when I first saw the question about you know bad credit and no money, the, the reason, because if you have no money, you're going out to get money from investors, uh, from an outside source or you know OPM, whatever you want to call it. And they are going to be, those people will be looking at you. Yes. And depending on what your situation is with your bad credit, I don't know why you would have bad credit or if you just have no credit, what the situation is there. But uh, that could be that could be a serious issue yes. for you if you have bad credit because you are, you know, financially irresponsible. Uh, I would not lend money to somebody that was financially irresponsible. I mean, it just yeah, exactly <laughs> doesn't make sense. So um, d- depending on what your situation is, yeah, you might need to kind of address some of that, uh, some of those issues and show that you can be fiscally and financially responsible uh, because that's a huge deal. And I think it's funny, uh, you've gotten the question a lot too, AJ, where it's like, oh, did you, um, when you started using other people's money, did you have to kind of like make sure that, you know, you didn't go crazy? Because it's not your money anymore. It's like yeah. like you have less of a respect for somebody else's money than you do yours. Yes. But it's complete, completely opposite. Yeah. No. <laughs> Where it's like, dude, I was fine risking my money, but 100%. now I'm taking other people's money. That's a huge responsibility. Yeah, that was a great question I, we got and I saw. And it was interesting for me because like when I got started, you know, and some people, it, it, it can be the exact opposite. Some people, they don't view it as their money. So they're more risk burning me. But when, when we got started, we just used our own money and I would be, I was terrified of taking anybody's money after I learned and we grew assets and we grew a whole company on my dollar and we started taking other people's money. There was lots of things that I wouldn't do anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. I was okay risking my money. I was okay taking risks. And even when we did, you know, perfect example, right. Is like, we were converting an office building. And we had to buy that really quick. And there weren't a lot of answers. And we didn't know the outcomes. So instead of using investors' money, we used our money. And I paid for it in cash. And then 
we waited to figure everything out before we went and took investors' money. So I am way more <laughs> risk-centric with my money, mm-hmm. and I am very risk-adverse with other people's money. Yeah. That, that makes me nervous. No, 100%. And that totally makes sense. Like You should have that dynamic going on. It should not be you should not have that situation at all where you're like, oh, I'm just using other people's money. Like, if it fails, whatever. Like, no, dude. Yeah. That's a bad place to be. Uh, next question. I've got, I'll kind of give a couple questions here. Uh, one of the first questions, have you ever added solar panels as a revenue source at any of your facilities? It's, I wouldn't call it a revenue yeah. source. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> More of like a uh, expense reduction yes. strategy. Offset. Offset. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's use big We're words. Offsetting the expenses. <laughs> yeah. Offset. Yeah. No, we've totally done that. We uh, we re-roofed uh, an entire facility and put uh, solar panels on the top of it. Because what was the monthly? Because this was an all like interior. Six thousand. It was like six thousand a month Bombers. and just electricity to utilities that was during the heat of the summer if you averaged it out it might not have been that high but this was a ginormous building Mm -hmm. and all interior climate control yeah um but when in two when you look at it um like this is really state dependent so when we started we were in the northwest Mm -hmm. and so for the longest time every time we looked at solar because we thought this makes total sense because we have these big roofs Economically, it made no sense because in the Northwest, our power is super cheap. It's mm-hmm. green. It's renewable. We don't have coal plants, and it's readily available. Mm-hmm. Available. So it's really, really cheap. So in those markets, solar panels made no sense at all, um, and we've uh, we've never done it in those markets. Now we move into other markets that have much higher energy cost, um, and then it starts to make a lot of sense, right? Now, yes, there's tax benefits, but I don't do things just for tax benefits that don't make sense. And, you know, you hear people say weird things. Oh, yeah, I'm taking losses, but it's okay because I get offset it. Like, I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that mentality. Like, it needs to make really good financial sense, and then the tax benefits are the bonus. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. That's, that's a huge, huge topic in and of itself is that distinction between, you know, ga- how do you gauge to – pull the trigger on these things or not. Um, next question here is kind of an in-depth question. Uh, if you want to dive into this one, AJ, it's a pretty good question. Uh, somebody was saying that, uh, I'll just read the whole question here. It says, actively searching for my first deal uh, instead of starting small, raising capital for down payment. And uh, when doing sample underwriting, once I add debt service, there seems to be insufficient cash flow to provide investors with an 8% preferred return. Uh, especially with the low cap rates. Does this mean I should be getting interest-only loans? Is that the typical structure when bringing in investors? Thanks. So there's a lot in this. Yeah, I was like, this, this is, is going to be a hefty this, one. This is a hefty one. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of unknowns, and this is going to require me to make a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. So first of all, if it doesn't cash flow, I don't buy it, plain and simple. And I don't play tricks with debt. Okay. Let me put it this way. I, I I talk to a lot of people about this and I didn't know, like a lot of things we did, we brought investors in way later in our investing life cycle. So the way we approach things is very different. And I didn't even understand that it was different. So when we were seeing other people send out like 
uh, their investments, things like that. I'm looking at it, I'm like, this doesn't, not that it doesn't make sense to me, but it's like, I don't think this is a very good deal. And I found out very quickly that some people underwrite assets individually, but then other people underwrite them as an investment vehicle. So they look at it from the investor side when they're doing the underwriting and the GP side. So all of a sudden they're playing with how much can I get from investors? What kind of debt structure will give a total return? You know, things like that. I've never looked at deals that way. We've only underwritten the deal. And if the deal was an amazing deal, we worried about that stuff after the fact that we knew we were going to buy this thing. Mm -hmm. And so we underwrite deal first. We look at it as what I would call an investment offering second. And a lot of people that raise capital and fund deals, there's really big companies out there right now in self-storage that are buying huge deals. And they're doing it because it makes sense as an investment structure and how much they can make off it and how much fees they can get, things like that. And I just don't subscribe to that at all. In fact, I think that's one of the big problems in the industry. Um, I worry about the investment first and then after. So if I had a deal that I said after debt and I need to include a debt payment, it doesn't cash flow or doesn't make money or anything else like that. And I, I would really, I, I obviously, I wouldn't do the deal unless I had a clear pathway for it to make money. So it was a value-add strategy, right? Because I'm going to overlay the investor structure on top of that. So then I take an investor's money. But if I already know that that investment, if I was using my own money, which is how I look at it, if I'm going to put $3 million into this, and I think within three years, this is going to be giving me, and I think I can get a 20% internal rate of return, I don't need to worry about the investor structure and what they'll get because almost any structure that I put in there is going to give those investors above a 10% internal rate of return or return on their investment over a three-year period of time, right? And so when we look at doing structures and deals, I get very nervous about people using debt. I don't want to say gimmicks, but debt structures to make investments a good investment. Um, the reason being is when we do it, it's not that we don't take interest only, we do, but we don't look at the investment like that. So all of a sudden, when all said and done, we've already put the investment out, we've got our investors, then we get the debt structure on and they're like, oh yeah, we can get you an interest only for two years. We're like, oh wow, great. that's great. Our investors' internal rate of return just skyrocketed, mm. right? And it's like, <laughs> that's, that's a cherry on top, but it's not why we did the deal because that goes both ways. So if you do interest only and then there's a restructuring of debt or refinancing of debt and the interest rate is much higher or you're just putting off debt loads, right? There's a whole bunch of scenarios that this could actually turn catastrophic mm -hmm. and really, really bad. And so I call this my margin of stupidity, right? And I talk about this a lot. Um, I have a whole thing for the CRE circle on this. Uh, but the, the margin of stupidity, right, that I talk about, you guys, it's that the deal has to be good enough to where I can be stupid. Like I can make mistakes and it's still a good deal. And if it passes my margin of stupidity test, then I'm okay bringing investors in, then I'm okay making the deal work. So I know that it, like that's kind of a big, long answer to that. Without having the variables and everything in, I hope that expresses how I feel or would approach that situation. I love it. No, good rundown of that. And uh, dude, I had somebody on here. It says, official sources say this comment is false. And it says, 
this is on our uh, one of the CMBS loan <laughs> videos. It says overcomplicated Ponzi scheme BS non recourse. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, we get these comments from time to time. People don't understand how the investing world works. <clears throat> so I don't know if you want to talk. Yeah, yeah. People about are actually often shocked when you, they find out that. Basically, all the money in the world it exists that exists is not only debt, but it's located in the bond market. The bond market is the largest market in the world. It's a debt market, and the debt market in bond structures is pretty much non-recourse. So that's how assets are traded. That's how assets are are, are done. All commercial mm-hmm. real estate. Now, I guess if you're buying a house and you've never been like you don't know how those higher level things work. It can be like this is obviously a Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. No, right? it sounds crazy. It right? Sounds it's crazy. Like, wait a second. Like I can off offset all of my uh, risk in this investment, and and again, it's not it's not like you're offsetting all of your risk, and you could never lose your facility, and the value is never going to go down. No, you it's can like lose. Never, it's like, dude, there's very real risks there still. Yes, but. It's not. They don't come after you. You. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. lose your house. It's not personally guaranteed. Exactly. And no, it's it, a real thing. Look it's it up. A real thing. It's, Study it's, it. it's actually the main thing. Yeah. It, when when I think <laughs> about Ponzi schemes and I'm there, I'm like, no, you're signing personal debt on a house. I'm like, that's more of a Ponzi scheme to me. I'm like, that's actually the Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. The bank makes all the money. Yeah. No kidding. Right. <laughs> you take all the risk. Yeah. That's the freaking Ponzi. Yeah. That scheme. sucks. Get out of that. Cycle, yeah, dude. So it, it's interesting when I hear people say things like that, but it's just a, it's just, just a, heard it. they just don't know. Yeah, it's they just, just don't know. and I think that's it's an eye opening fact when they realize that actually that's how the entire world works mm-hmm. and that the other side is the exception. Right. Yeah. That's, it's so crazy too. Yeah. I mean, just to think of that where, you know, you have all, uh, most people are on that side of not. Uh, yeah, understanding no how the game is being played, yeah. uh, which is unfortunate, but that's why we're here. That's what you know. We love doing what we're doing, and what AJ's huge mission is of you know impact, freedom, and progress, and and sharing that with everybody to open eyes and to to pull back the veil and show how these systems work and and how you guys can not just be stuck on the sidelines because that's one of the things that really is eye opening is the fact that it's not even that you're sitting on the sidelines. It's that you're playing the game and you don't even freaking realize it. Yeah, you don't even realize. <laughs> like you have yeah. no idea. Yeah, you're bank, actually on the you're, field. You are your bank, you are recourse to your bank, but that bank's debt is non-recourse to them. Mm-hmm. So they're using your capital to leverage. They don't have risks. They get bailouts. They get everything else. Like once again, when you look at it, to me, like the Ponzi scheme is what most people think is normal. Mm-hmm. That's the actual Ponzi. 100%. <laughs> and it's yeah, I love it. like, it drives me crazy because I'm like, you have everything stacked against you. They have all the upside and they can take what you do and leverage it 10 times. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's an actual like Ponzi scheme. What no, banks do, yeah. if you looked at it, it's a legal Ponzi scheme, but yet they think that if you don't play that way, so it's a lack of understanding and knowledge, which I sympathize with, Mm -hmm. right? But for everybody, it's like, you really need to understand how the financial system is set up. It's it's set up to do these things. It's set up for the bond market to work in your favor. It, It rewards you. It's the same with taxes. Lots of people think that, Oh, if you get tax write-offs, yeah, that yeah. you're cheating something that you're doing. Like the tax code, like 
less than 10% of the tax code has anything to do with paying taxes. Mm -hmm. Paying taxes is a form of penalizing someone for not using their money in the way the government needs you to use it. Yep. The government needs you to be building things. They need you to make products, services, infrastructure, buildings. They need you to give your money back to society. And if you don't do that, they're going to penalize you. And they got, because now they have to take that money so they can do it, right? But we don't live in a society, the government can't do everything. So everything that you use on a day-to-day basis was incentivized for someone to create so we can all use it and do it, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of people say, oh, getting tax write-offs is a Ponzi scheme, right? Or it's not. Where actually, they don't understand that that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. One of the one of the huge driving forces for me in understanding that shift was I'd read that book um, Tax Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright, and it dives into so many of these things. It covers this exact subject where it's like it's almost like this honorable thing. Like, well, I should pay all my taxes and ta- and do this and do that. And it's like, yeah, you know, pay your taxes and all this stuff. It's like, but yeah. it's not like this duty. That you no. need to, that you owe in some obligation. No, not like at all. It's, it's like, like you said, it's a system to penalize you for penalty. not being yeah. productive. And, and it makes sense, right? So if I want to go buy a freaking Lamborghini, right? The only person I get to go drive around and I'm all flashy, everything else like that. And the government's like, okay, hey, you're just going to go out and buy luxury goods that waste things. I got to tax you on that, right? We got to make sure that you know, you're getting taxed. But if you're going to build housing, as an investment, you can make money and build wealth from it. That's mm-hmm. fine. But we're going to give you write-off for building housing. If you're going to build commercial real estate, if you're going to build products and services, if you're going to help people, then of course you should get a write-off and it needs to be incentivized that way. So yeah. just spending money for you to spend money, right? Then you can't, obviously we need to take some from you. Well, why wouldn't you want to put your money that you earned, that you made, that you created into these assets or these these different avenues to build and to do the things that you want to do, whether that is through business or that is through you know providing uh, providing foundations or organizations with funding or whatever it is. I mean, you can take your money and keep your money and actually build the things that you want to build instead of sitting there and giving it all to the government to to, I mean, lack of a better term, like just waste it yeah. on all this crap that you have no say in. I, I mean, I would much rather keep and save my money and put it where I actually want it to be and to stay and to actually build things that I find valuable, that mm-hmm. I agree with, whatever that is. I mean, I, I don't see why you would you would disagree no. with that. No, 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 no. The money needs to be in the system. Well, and again, it needs to be working 100%. for society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And the moment it stops working for society is the moment we have a problem. So true. So true. Dude, we could go down that rabbit hole for <laughs> so long. Yeah. Um, this one is more self-storage specific. Uh, a couple questions in this, in this comment here. It's asking, uh, this individual is asking, how important is location in as in proximity to main roads? Uh, with that question as well, it was uh, essentially asking, do you reach out to the town or city to get something in writing saying you can use the land for the intended purpose before you make an offer on the land or move forward with the purchase? Yes. So, um, yeah, zoning is huge. Yeah, zoning is huge. <laughs> and what you want to do is you want to go under contract. 
but that contract is dependent on approvals. Yeah, you have your contingencies in there. So it's contingent on that land being approved. So we have this all the time where, you know, we're looking at a piece of property and we're saying, oh, this would be a fantastic market, all this stuff, or it is a fantastic market. And, um, but the current zoning isn't what it needs to be. We literally just looked at something last week with the same same situation. So just like AJ's talking about in your letter of intent, your contract that you send uh, to purchase the, the, the land or the property, it's going to be contingent, and, and you need to talk to your attorneys about these things, it's going to be contingent on that land, that the, the closing is going to be contingent on the land being approved and zoned for your intended use. So that way you're not stuck in, in going in and buying a piece of land that ends up not being you, you go to the city and they're like oh yeah you can't do that we're not going to approve that you're like okay cool now i have this piece of land that i have no idea what to do with and i can't do anything else with uh, so that can be a huge conundrum but uh yes definitely i mean if you're looking at markets go and talk to those cities they've got master plans they've got everything yes. zoned out you can find most of this information on their websites Go on the assessor's websites, go to the city websites, find all the information you can in these markets and in these places. And yeah, ideally, it would work a lot better, especially through the entitlements process and all these things that you would need to do. If you can skip rezoning something, do it. Like, 100%. Don't go and rezone something and and waste that time and money and effort because, tell you what, it's not cheap to go through and do all that stuff. So, um, And, And when you're looking at risk, Um, It's about, especially development, it's about mitigating the risk. And your biggest risk is the entitlement risk. It's Mm -hmm. getting through entitlements. And so you really need that contingent. And if it if there, if it's not, it need there needs to be a reason that you're confident or an exit plan. So let me give you an exact example of this. We bought a piece of property that was 15 acres on this great intersection, which we are going to build a huge storage facility, and they would not allow for contingencies. Now this is in a market that I live. I'm literally building. I like my home that I'm building is looking down on the property. Um, And the risk of it is that we can't get it. Now, the land is extraordinarily valuable. We could sell it today more than we bought it for. Um, But the kind of ace that we had is we, the city, fire, and police needed that location. They were trying to buy it. So what we did is we came in and said, we're going to give five acres and we're going to develop out these five acres and we're going to change some of the road systems in it. And allow you to, to do that. But you have to submit the application to the city with us. So we're submitting an application together. That means the city, if they say no to us, they're also turning down the fire and police station that they need and they don't have land to do it. And they need it desperately. So it gives us an edge in that asset. And two, we have an exit strategy where we can sell it if that didn't go through for some reason for more than we bought it for. So you need to be very dynamic when looking at that. And it, you need to make sure if we didn't have an edge, it, the land would have to be contingent on it or that's too much risk and we wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love it. Love it. Uh, the second part of that question was like proximity to a main road. 
uh, yeah, you definitely want as close to main roads as possible. This whole thing where you have facilities off of the main road that, that are not visible, you, you want that visibility. You want the ability to have signage. You want to be able to direct people to your facility if they're driving by and looking for it. And again, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you don't need signage. No, you totally do. Even in today's world of technology, what happens if I look you up on Google and I'm driving around for five minutes trying to find somebody and I in storage knowing how you know, overbuilt some of these markets are, if I drive by that facility and I don't see your sign and I drive a mile down the road and I see another sign, I might even just confuse the two and be like, oh, that, that must be it. That must have been a wrong thing on Google Maps or whatever it is. But um, signage is huge. Close proximity to main arteries and roads, huge. You want to be in the path of growth. You want to be in the path of, of uh, expansion and all these different things. And uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, you can talk to cities. They do traffic studies and all kinds of things as well. I mean, get that information and see, you know, how many thousands of cars are driving by that every day. And, um, and just verify and make sure. And it, you, you definitely want that traffic going yes. by your facility. 100%. Accessibility. Is, is really important too. Yeah, yeah. Accessibility. I mean, you think about Usage. people in, in moving trucks. Yes. I mean, what's easiest for them in accessing your facility? Uh, let's see here. I'm trying to find another good question here. I'd like to uh, find a good one here to top it off. A couple on cell towers, you know, we've got a... We have video on that. <laughs> um... Oh, you know what? This is a really good... This is the second time we've actually got somebody talking about this where you're talking about a 1031 exchange and they're like, oh, well, it sounded like the facility sold for less than what you paid for it. So there was technically no capital gains. So why would you 1031 it? They're just thinking of like- So hold on. Why would you 1031? Because they think that they- So because you were saying that the property sold- for less than what you bought it for, technically. Like, you didn't make money, so why would you bother 1031-ing? So... If you lost money and didn't have to pay taxes, I guess you don't need to. Right. That's, but you never lost I've money. I've never lost money, though. Right. So... Right. Yeah. So... And that's and that's very... And, you know, I guess that is it, but that's a whole other problem. Right, right. And it, we actually dove into this in the comments section of YouTube at one point and described the different layers of this where it's not it's not that you made money but you came out with more than what you had before because you're only putting in and doing debt service on x amount of it and so when you have that you're still going to have that capital gains so you're still going to need to 1031 it so yeah that and and that's a very dynamic question and really at the end of the day your CPA on an individual basis is going to tell you how it looks what it is um, but if your actual net outcome is zero or, zero or negative, yeah, you don't have capital gain. But lots of times, even if you sold it for the same amount, you may have capital gains because of payoff of debt, things like that. That that needs to be really gone over with your CPA because it is so specific to the individual project and its outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're making money and you're selling it for more, yeah, you want a 1031 exchange it to avoid not just capital gains. And that's something a lot of people think about, but they forget. You also have recoup of depreciation mm-hmm. and that can kill you. So long-term holds, once you sell, you have to recoup depreciation that was taken out out of that net gain plus capital gains. 
And that that is a lot. And that's why when people think of real estate and even like Biden's tax plan where he's like, oh, yeah, we should just move up capital gains to, you know, 45 percent or something like that. Well, when you actually look at it, some of these long-term hold properties and they want to take away 1031 exchange for over a million dollars. In Which real estate, everything. that's everything. Yeah. And, that, and that's like at that point, you're talking about you're going to lose the majority of any money that you'll ever take out of it because you've taken depreciation because that's how it's set up, right? That's how the rules work. So you take this depreciation for years, then you have to sell it. You lose 50% of it to capital gains. And then you have to recoup all this depreciation over the years. And you're sitting there going, I can't make money at this and I can't 1031 exchange it. So this is something that we worry about that is seizing velocity of money, meaning money stops moving through the economy. It stops changing hands. It stops doing those kind of things. So it's lots of people focus on the capital gains, but it's not just that that you have to think about when you sell the property. 100%. And I, I was going to try to find what video it was where we kind of dived in, dove in and, and described this more in depth for that same question. But it makes sense. And again, if it's not making sense to you, talk to a CPA and uh, get those things figured out. Uh, with that, I think it's a good place to wrap up. you have anything else? Yeah. Parting words of advice? Parting words wisdom. for advice. These are amazing questions. Jump on YouTube, guys. I literally, we make, so, you know, me and Connor, when we are going over our content, um, a lot of it's driven by what you guys want to see. And so your questions like this, I mean, we make podcast, YouTube videos, um, I, I mean, we're doing this huge conversion and me and Connor were there all morning and we are posting the updates, the, all the surprises that they're finding with like sewage lines running into the middle of the building, um, hidden second floors that we didn't know existed when they start tearing stuff down. Um, we're post or we're posting a lot of that stuff on there. So go to those avenues, look and give us the feedback and we can keep making, uh, content that you guys want. Um, and then two, we're rolling that over to things like our conference that we're talking about all of these things. So make sure you sign up for the conference and um, keep hitting us with these great questions. We love it. Appreciate you guys. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys.